Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights, this week, Acts 16 through 21. We are going to cover a lot of mileage and a lot of years. And a lot of territory. And yes, this this is Paul's second and third missionary journeys. Now, just to get a, a 30,000 foot overview, uh, you have the first missionary journey that we covered in last week's lesson, and keep in mind that that one was from Acts 13 through Acts 14, verse 26. It covered roughly 1,400 miles, uh, and it, w- it was the shortest of the three missionary journeys for sure. The second journey that we're going to begin with today goes from Acts 15, verse 36 through 18, verse 22. It's going to cover three years, three and a half years. It's going to be approximately 3,000 miles in length. And a lot of that walking. And a lot of that walking all through Syria, Turkey, and then over coming down Greece. It's it's a lot of painful miles. The third journey is going to be from chapter 18, verse 23, through chapter 20, verse 38. This one's going to be four years, a little over four years, roughly 3,500 miles. And once again, covering a lot of the similar uh, territory from the second journey, which we don't usually talk about when we're reading these scriptures. We we talk about the exciting events along the way, and we don't talk about the intense journey, the difficulty connecting those big stories that we love to tell. This would be multiple nights, like hundreds of nights, where you're out on the wayside, sleeping in terrible weather with uh, mosquitoes and bugs or cold or hot or sun. They're dealing with a lot, and it just doesn't come out in the story, this daily sacrifice that missionary that this missionary group is making, which brings us now to our day today. So many of you spend so much time and energy every single day doing these common things that are easy to overlook and nobody's going to come and give you credit for it or applaud you for it. So for any of you who maybe feel overlooked or forgotten, not recognized, not appreciated, not valued, remember that the angels up in heaven, they're, they're watching everything and perhaps the journey is as important as the destination in many cases here, and and what you're sacrificing along the way is part of our test of mortality. And so let's let's jump onto this missionary journey with with Paul. And to begin this one, this second mission, we need to actually go back to the ending of chapter 15, the last few verses, because that's where they they decide to embark on this second journey. Starting in verse 36, it says, And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, this is after that Jerusalem conference where they made that compromise, 
He said, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So it's, hey, mission companion, let's go retrace our steps. And Barnabas is all excited to go, and he's also excited to take John Mark with them again in verse 37. But Paul in 38 says, he thought it not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So Paul has this, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder against John Mark saying, no, he is not coming with us. He, he abandoned our mission last time. Why would we take him again? And verse 39 says, and the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. So if you were to look at the map, instead of taking the ship out to Cyprus, he and Silas went north by land instead of by sea like Barnabas and John Mark did. What's important to note here, if you look carefully at Paul's writings, even though there was this disagreement about who should be in the companionship, Paul and Barnabas do not seem to have like a final asundering. They seem to continue to be beloved friends. Paul speaks in very high and glowing terms about Barnabas in other letters. So what I like about this is it shows the humanity of these early church leaders that people um, often have different opinions about how to do things, and even so, it didn't mean that the relationship was entirely broken. I don't know how they may have resolved things, but it just gives me hope, like, if I've had a disagreement with somebody, it doesn't have to be permanently scarring to our ongoing relationship. If you've ever worked in a presidency or in any companionship in a mission setting or in family relationships where maybe there's some, some dissension, contention, difference of opinion that's really intense. I love this part of the story because it, you would think, well, wait a minute, now Barnabas and John Mark are going this way and Paul and Silas are going this way, going north, they're all going to fail on their mission because they had this contention at the outset and, and now it's a failed mission and yet you're going to find that this second missionary journey of Paul and Silas is extremely successful. To me, that is a sign of God's goodness and God's grace, that it really is his work that we're embarking in. Now, would it have been better to not have the contention? Absolutely. But does the contention prevent God from still using them as instruments in his hands to perform miracles? No. And as that is true for them 2,000 years ago, it's true for you and me today that even if our relationships aren't exactly perfect, if we'll put our focus on the Savior and plead with him to use us as an instrument in his hands, he is still well able to do his work, even, even when that instrument might be a little more dull than it otherwise could have been. He's, that's part of the miracle of, of the Lord's uh, coming forth of the gospel, spreading of the gospel. Let's remind you that we have some useful maps both online and at the back of your print scriptures of the Bible where you can trace Paul's second and third missionary journeys because what we have here is a lot of mention of uh, names and locations 
I don't know about you, but sometimes it's a little overwhelming for me where there's a lot of locations mentioned where I don't immediately know where they are. So we recommend bookmarking the maps, and as the names pop up, you can follow along. One other additional resource, if you will put it down in the description, where you can see all the places highlighted on an interactive map is what is called scriptures.byu.edu forward slash map script. And you click on Acts, and you can see all these places highlighted on a map. So, as Taylor was mentioning, it's so helpful if you can have this kind of overview and watch the journey unfold. This is a very, very rough uh, sketch of the Mediterranean region. So here's Greece, here's modern-day Turkey, here's modern-day Syria, and here's the modern-day Israel. So we're starting this missionary journey from Antioch, and watch as Paul is guided and directed by the Spirit. So he's going to come up this way because Barnabas and John Mark went this way to retrace their, their first missionary journey. So let's begin in chapter 16, verse 1. Then came he to Derby and Lystra. Remember when he healed the lame man in Derby and Lystra from his first missionary journey when they wanted to uh, worship him as a god and then they stoned him? And he picks up a new disciple here named Timotheus. So that's the Greek name. The English name would be Timothy. So the first and second epistles to Timothy, it's assumed, are to this man. He's the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. So you have a pagan man who married this Jewess woman, and their son is Timothy. And so Paul picks him up as a missionary journey or as a missionary companion. And in verse 3 it says, him would Paul have to go forth with him, and he took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And so circumcision was the mark of a, the Jewish identity for a man. What I love about Timothy's name is that in Greek it means honored of God, and we will see that in his missionary efforts and also in the epistles dedicated to him, that we can see how God honors his disciples who seek to honor him. Love it. So we've come up here and we've now retraced our steps from Derby, Lystra, Iconium. We're going to go through Antioch. So those are the main cities, not counting the ones down on Cyprus, that they covered and had their success on the first missionary journey. So we're done with Antioch and now we head east. Now this is fascinating. Watch this journey. When they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. So we talk about Asia. This was considered kind of Asia right here. Ty can write that on the board. You have an area called Cappadocia here. And up in this region was called Galatia, and it comes from the word for Celts. So you know you have Celts up in the area of France and Britain. Well, many Celts had immigrated over to this area, and the Roman Empire named this area where Celts were living as 
Galatia or Galatia. In fact, we have a letter that Paul writes to this region called the letter to the Celts or the letter to the Galatians. So here we are. Uh, the Holy Ghost told them, don't preach the word in Asia. So we've, we've been heading this direction. And so what did they do? After we were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. So they decide, okay, the Holy Ghost has, has made it clear we're not supposed to preach the word here, so let's go up to Bithynia, which is up here by the Black Sea. It turns out in the ancient world, ancient Mediterranean world, uh, the word black and red had geographical designations. Black would indicate north and red the south, and that's where we get the phrase. You basically have North Sea and South Sea, so the Black Sea would be on the north and the Red Sea on the south. So can you picture being on this journey? We're like, okay, we're not supposed to preach the gospel here, let's go to Bithynia, and so we start working that direction, and after they started on that, that path, it says in the bottom of verse 7, but the Spirit suffered them not. At this point, they then turn west and they're going to head out to the coastline again. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. So you've heard of the Trojan War, so they're passing by the ancient ruins of where the Trojan War happened, but there was a, a community in their day called Troas that was built nearby. The reason why this is such a crucial place strategically is that it controlled the trade routes going up from the Mediterranean into the Black Sea, and so the Trojan War and later Troas became important commercial centers because they protected where all this traffic could go in and out of these areas. So I wonder if this first part of this second missionary journey could have applicable value to some of us today. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've, you've had a really good idea and you felt like it was a flash of brilliance, I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to pursue this. Maybe it was a relationship, maybe it was an educational opportunity, maybe it was a career, maybe it was a move to a different location, different city or state, and, it, and it's all exciting, and then it turns out that that isn't where you needed to be. And then you get another idea, okay, maybe, maybe that was to help me go here, and so you go a different direction, only to find out, nope, that isn't right. I love watching these first few verses here because it would have been so easy for these missionaries to just sit down on the side of the road and say, fine, you, Lord, you're telling us what not to do, but you're not telling us what to do, and we keep trying, but it seems like we can't figure this out, so we'll just sit here on the side of the road until you give us the direction of where to go rather than telling us where not to go. I love the fact that these missionaries just kept going. They kept trying. They gave it their best effort, their best thinking, and they put the energy into doing that, and at the end of the day, they end up here on the coastline, and they still don't know what to do, but they've been going. I think that's a powerful principle for us to consider today is it's easier for the Lord to steer a ship that's moving than a ship that's stuck at the dock. It doesn't do you any good to turn the steering wheel, 
wheel when it's stopped. You've, you've heard this analogy before. This story to me is one of the best examples in Scripture of that principle that we can apply in our life to say, get up, do your best thinking, and if the Lord hasn't given you a specific direction, go and let him guide you along the way. So here we are in Troas. In verse 9 it says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is northern Greece up here, so come over here and help us is the vision. At that point, when you wake up the next morning and Paul says, hey, I had a vision, there was a man over in Macedonia saying, we're thinking, finally, the Lord has given us direction, we're going to cross the sea, then we're going to have success because we're going to start preaching the gospel. And it picks it up in verse 10, and, and verse 10 is a, a beautiful transition point. You'll notice the pronoun here. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. I, I love how you pause to look at very specific words that sometimes we just read over very quickly. It's this little two-letter word that could be super compelling to help us understand something about the composition of this text. On two levels. So the first level is more of a, a housekeeping thing. It's fascinating that Luke, the author of the book of the Acts, he now for the first time in 16 chapters is using a pronoun that includes him. And every time it seems that Paul comes to Troas, Luke seems to join the missionary party. It seems to be his hometown. He's now traveling with Paul, and sometimes we, we miss that because everything previous to this was the pronouns are third person. Now it's first person plural. He's in the group. He's now journeying with Paul. The second thing that I think is fascinating with this is that Paul is the only one who had the vision, and immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia implies that not everybody in the group needs to have the same vision. Leadership is about getting direction, having a vision, sharing the vision with the, leader, with the people you're leading, and them having the meekness and the humility to trust your connection with heaven and to follow. So here's Paul, this, this great missionary, this great apostle, he shared it with him, and these people, including Luke now, are saying, we're with you, let's go, we don't have to have the vision ourselves, we're going to trust you and we're going to move forward. We live in an age where we glorify leadership, and for good reason. Great leaders can do great things if they have great followers. We don't spend a lot of time glorifying or honoring followers, and here Luke and others are very good followers, as Tyler was talking about. And we think about being disciples means we are followers of Jesus. And I've often wondered, aren't the best leaders first the best followers? I look at Peter. He was a very good follower, and because of that, Jesus knew he could trust him to lead out when Jesus was no longer physically available. And let's, on, on that same note, Taylor, let's just state the obvious. The greatest leader, the greatest teacher of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ, also happened to be the greatest follower, the greatest disciple, the most covenantally loyal of all time. He did everything that his father asked him to do, which made him such a profound leader. 
So if you're, if you're struggling with your own leadership, perhaps you could spend not all of your time studying leadership principles, but perhaps studying principles of discipleship, personal discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ and keep your focus on him and see how he lived his life and try to mirror that and watch what happens with your capacity to lead and people's willingness to follow. So now, what, what would you all expect? We've had this vision, we get over to Macedonia, and you would think, based on that vision, we're going to get off the boat and there are going to be people holding banners saying, welcome to Greece, welcome to Europe, missionaries, we want to be baptized, right? We're taking the gospel for the first time in Scripture from Asia, what we today call Asia, over into Europe as we cross into Greece, into Macedonia, and it says, we loosed from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, this new town. And there's no, there, there's no group there saying, teach us, we, we want to be disciples. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. Are you sensing the flow here? It they're, they're moving along and nothing is really happening. They're in action without any consequence. And I can picture them coming up to Paul maybe a, a, a few evenings as they're gathering around for their evening meal after a couple weeks saying, uh, Paul, that vision you had, are you sure? Was that just a silly dream? Because I'm not seeing anything happening over here. I love the fact that they stay the course. Just because the Lord finally does give you a direction of where to go doesn't always mean that you're going to experience instantaneous success and receive a witness after the trial of your faith immediately after you've, you've proven faithful. Sometimes it takes certain days. So, verse 13, says, on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. So now we get introduced to our first European convert, and she happens to be a woman, a seller of purple. Her name is Lydia, in yeah. verse 14. It, purple is a very difficult product to make in the ancient world. Often you had to get it from uric shells, you'd have to get a lot of them, and to squeeze out this, this purple dye that would be in the shells, and usually it was a very expensive item for people to purchase. So Lydia apparently is working in the luxury industry, likely selling clothing to rulers and very wealthy people. And notice that when she's baptized, it's not just her, verse 15, her household, which is interesting. In a very patriarchal world, we mean this in the sense of the technical sense, where it was often male-dominated, you would often have a man who is the head of the household, and here it seems to be Lydia and her household, which is unusual in the ancient world. But she seems to be somebody of prominence or means or at least well-respected because of the kind of profession she's in to provide luxury goods for those in the community. So our first European convert, Lydia, and her household, uh, join the, the, the church, and in verse 16 it says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So here's this, this damsel who, who does this soothsaying. She comes up 
and her, her message to the people in verse 17 is, these men are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. It's an odd thing for a, a, a damsel possessed to say. Again, remember, the devils will sometimes tell truth, not because they're truthful, not because they're beings of, of light that are trying to lead you towards that which is things as they really are, they will only tell the truth to get you to trust them because then they'll tell you something that's not true. The deception will always come. And she's doing this for many days, and it finally grieves Paul to the point where he turns and he says, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out the same hour. Now, a few chapters ago, he had done something like this without mentioning Jesus, and people thought Paul was a god. Well, now he has a success in the name of Jesus, but the, the men now have lost their source of income, and they're not very happy. We see this happen a lot to Paul, where in his preaching of the truth, he creates challenges for people who are benefiting from false religious practice, like false idols or false soothsaying, and suddenly they're now in trouble yet again. So the magistrates of the city grab Paul and Silas, and you'll notice it says in verse 20, they brought them. So Paul and Silas were mentioned in verse 19. So Luke is not included in this. Luke wasn't arrested as well. So now he's back to the third person. He's telling their story of what happened to them. They brought them to the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Now, we need to pause here for just a second and discuss very briefly the significance of pagan worship versus this Christian doctrine that's now being taught by these missionaries. In the pagan pantheon of gods that the Romans have basically stolen from the Greeks and then just changed all of the, the Greek names for the gods and goddesses in that pantheon to Latin names, so Zeus becomes Jupiter, for instance, they have all of this wide-open belief. You can worship all these gods and goddesses, and in fact, later on, in, we're going to see that they are so excited about worshiping that they even have an altar for an unknown god just in case we missed one. So it wouldn't come across as strange to have some group of missionaries come into your city and say, hey, we want to teach you about this god, and our god, his name is Jesus Christ, and he's the son of Heavenly Father. They, they wouldn't, that wouldn't be that disturbing to them. wouldn't be confusing at all, but what would be challenging, of course, is and there's only one god to worship and all these other ones don't exist. That's the problem, is these missionaries aren't just teaching another god to add to a pantheon of gods and goddesses that you can worship. This god, the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and the second commandment is, thou shalt not worship idols. So you can see what the magistrates are now claiming. They're teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. They are defiling all of our gods and goddesses in favor of their one and only god, and this isn't good for us as Romans. So they're pretty upset. And to put things in context, to, to be a little bit um, empathetic to these individuals, I recognize that they're pagans, but in their worldview, 
they believed there was a different god or goddess assigned to almost any natural phenomenon you might experience. Wind, the waves, the growing of crops, birth and death, and that every god had a responsibility and you had to make sure you were in the good graces of that god so that wherever you were geographically or whatever stage of life, that things would go well for you. And if you didn't stay in the good graces of those gods, things would go poorly. So you can imagine being raised up in that environment, you wouldn't want to offend any god because what if you go from land to sea and you forgot to do your, your services towards Poseidon? You might go drown out at sea. And that's the challenge they face because they now feel this sense of not only the loss of income, but if there's only one god, god in charge, what if we happen to be wrong and some of these other gods still really do, do exist and we've now offended them? Our lives will go poorly. So we should probably just be slightly empathetic to these ancient people that both their livelihoods and their sense of self was all being put under threat. And it takes time to kind of update your thinking with new ideas. Absolutely. So it says that in verse 22, the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. This is fascinating because Paul didn't tell them that he's a Roman citizen. So is Barnabas, or sorry, sorry, so is Silas. He all he had to say is, I'm a Roman, and they would not have have uh, beat them. But he allowed it to take place. And then at midnight that night, verse 25, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto, the God, unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And then there was an earthquake. The foundation of the prison was shaken, all the doors were opened, and every man's bands were loosed. So the jailer, the keeper of the prison, he wakes up and he saw the prison doors open. Oh, he thinks, oh my gosh, I'm going to be executed, I'm full of shame. So he pulls out his sword, but Paul cried, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. So he called out for a light, and he sprang in and he came trembling, and he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, you can take that phrase two ways. You can take it physically or spiritually. What do I need to do to save my life? Because these doors are open, all of the – what do I need to do? I think it goes a lot deeper than just how do I save my life to the spiritual realm of what must I do to be saved. He senses something. Perhaps he had listened to their prayers and their singing and it struck a chord with him and he's he's now going to them. Of all the prisoners, they're the ones who are saying, do thyself no harm. So he comes to them, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Now, can we just point out here, there's a little concept that, that creeps up every once in a while in discussing doctrine, discussing scriptures, discussing principles. It's this idea called proof texting. Proof texting is where you take one verse or one chapter, one isolated concept from scripture, and you read it, and then you pull it off the page and you elevate it above everything else, and then you, you prove your point with that one isolated verse or a couple of verses that say basically the same thing. Proof texting is what happens when people get into Bible bashes 
or when they get into serious contention over doctrine. It's, it's almost like a doctrinal chess match where somebody will proof text this verse and say, no, all you have to do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's right there. See? That's all you have to do. And if that's the case, then why do we have any other scriptures? That's the point. We've shared this before. It's probably worth writing down again really briefly. The word context is what goes with the text, the surrounding environment and meaning. And without context, the text is a con. We can get tricked or messed up. And so the more context you have, the more likely you are to get to accuracy in meaning-making. So to interpret the context of this story and of this statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, lest somebody might be tempted to pull that verse off and say, oh, well then why am I trying to keep all these commandments? All I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and I'm, I'm saved. That's what he said right there. The context is here's a jailer who was ready to, to do himself in and he's asking them, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't give him 20 steps. He gives him the first step. You have to believe. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is step one, and if you start on that journey, we'll work with you. That is the journey that leads to salvation. So it's that idea of don't, don't hyper-focus or fixate on one verse or one concept or one step on the path of salvation. And you'll notice, if, if you're ever in a discussion with somebody who, who wants to proof text, it's not helpful to disagree and say, no, that verse is not right, because we like all these scriptures. We say, yes, that is true, but let's keep reading. Let's read all of it in its context. So you keep reading and it says, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house, Remember that concept that Taylor talked earlier with Lydia and her household? Same thing here with this jailer and his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and he was baptized, he and all his straight way. That's, this, that's amazing for so many reasons, that immediately they're willing to choose to follow Jesus. I also love that there's two washings going on here. If the jailer who needs to be washed in baptism first washes the servants who have been maltreated. It's, it's beautiful. So now, the next day, the magistrates sent the sergeants saying, let those men go. Just let them go. <laughs> now, Paul said, verse 37, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privily or privately, secretly? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. Now we see perhaps the motivation for why Paul allowed himself and Silas to be beaten, because Paul knows he's not going to stay in Philippi long term. He's on a missionary journey. He's passing through, and he knows how the people of that city are – it's the capital city of the region. It's huge. It's, a, it's their metropolis in Macedonia, and he knows how the people feel about the, their, these people who have joined the church, Lydia and her household, and now the jailer is part of that. It's almost as if Paul allowed himself to take some stripes 
so that now when the magistrates have to come themselves to get him out, he can say, we're Romans and you did this to us, at which point they're probably going to be a little more careful in how they treat Lydia and the other new converts. They, they know that Paul has been ill-treated and that any time Paul could bring that to higher authorities' attention and they could be in trouble. So we, I don't know that for sure, but it sure looks like that might be what's going on. So they came, they brought them out, they went out of the prison in verse 40 and entered into the house of Lydia, and then they departed. So now in chapter 17 we start working our way south in, in Greece. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apoll Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. So this is Paul's custom, as it tells you in verse 2, to enter into the synagogue first. He was there three Sabbaths, reasoning with them out of the scriptures, trying to convince these Jewish uh, people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of their Old Testament uh, scripture, their Hebrew scripture. And notice what his focus is in verse 3 in this effort. He's opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the, the one you've been waiting for. Well, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. Have you noticed, by the way, that Luke is no longer on this journey with them? Everything's back the way it used to be, which is he's telling the story, so later on he must have gotten the details from Paul or Silas or others, so he's filling in the blanks from a different location at this point. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy. This is, this is a repeat theme. They, they are envious at the success that these missionaries are having, and in the early days of our church in the Restoration, it seems that that is a common theme. Everywhere there would be success, it's the religious leaders of other faith traditions that would be envious and stir up the people and the leaders against the missionaries, just exactly like what's happening here. And what's interesting is we're about to see a riot's going to break out, and what's the claim? That the Christians have caused riots, that the Christians have caused uproar, and it's just a sad thing where often the people who are enacting the bad deeds will often blame other people for doing the very thing that they are doing. And that's what we see going on here in the case of Jason and his household who've been accused of causing an uproar, and the people get an uproar over it. So they bring Jason because he's the one who housed Paul and Silas, and they bring Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, and we have this, this major struggle. So verse 10 says, the brethren immediately send away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews, and these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So instead of starting an uproar, they say, that's an interesting claim you're making. I want to see if I can verify and validate, and they turn to the scriptures instead of turning to violence. What a beautiful pattern to follow what these men of Berea did, these people of, of the synagogue there. Right. The, the principle here is that whenever you receive new information, instead of just having an immediate emotional response, 
of whatever it might be, anger or confusion, just take the time to say, let me investigate a little bit further and act with rationality and as a child of God. And we still, unfortunately, see that in the world today where people just lash out over information, oftentimes, which is false information, and people lash out without getting to the bottom of what the truth really is. Unfortunately, history repeats itself. So we come to chapter uh, 17, verse 13, it says, When the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. We saw that in his first missionary journey back in Iconia and Antioch of Pisidia, Derby and Lystra, it happens again here. So the immediate, the, immediately the brethren send away Paul to go as if it were by sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. So Paul leaves, they brought Paul down to Athens in southern Greece, and he receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. So now here's Paul all alone in Athens waiting for his companions to show up, and we get this amazing story starting in verse 16. While he was waiting, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So if, if you've seen pictures of, if you've ever visited Athens, the Parthenon up on the hill, and below that you have the Areopagus or Mars Hill, it, it is a city that was completely devoted to the worship of the pantheon of the Greek gods and goddesses that the, we've mentioned before that the Romans have now changed to Latin names, but here we are in Greece. This is where it all started. Athens is the epicenter for this pagan worship of these particular this particular pantheon of gods and goddesses. So the Parthenon is from the Greek word parthenos, which means the virgin, and it was dedicated to Athena, who was the chief or patron god for the city of Athens, but there are many other gods there, and Paul is just like, this world has just become completely confused with all these disparate worldviews and worship of all these different gods and goddesses, and so he tries to insert himself to teach the truth. So, verse 17, here we go, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? So these are men who like to gather in the, the Agora or the Agora, the Forum, or in up on Mars Hill, and they love to just sit around and talk about ideas, because it's all about what you know, gnosis, it's a, it's a big deal to these ancient Greeks. It's rooted clear back into Plato and and Aristotle, and before them, Socrates, the, this expanding of the mind. So they're, they're all sitting there discussing ideas. And, and Athens was essentially a college town, actually one of the greatest university towns in the ancient world. So people were not afraid to hear new ideas necessarily, and it was expected that people would be generating or listening to new ideas. But of course, it would always be um, a, a pretty heavy debate about whether people would agree with this new idea or not. And we see that these philosophers, these educated people are already judging that they don't think Paul has anything of substance or of truth that they should be truly listening to. And, and, and it's described beautifully in that middle part of verse 18 when it says that their thought was, he, Paul, seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. So, so we're going to listen to him. This, this is, this is going to be good entertainment, right? 
because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him unto Areopagus, which in translation is just Mars Hill, and they said, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? And so he, he begins in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and he said unto them, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. The, the Greek word there you see in your footnote, most religious, you're very zealous for, for your worship. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Here's this idea of on Mars Hill you, you would have all these altars and all of these idols with the idea being that Taylor mentioned before, each god or goddess has a jurisdiction over some part of your life or part of nature, or a patron god or goddess for your city, in this case Athena, so she gets the big temple up on the hill. You get this idea that if you sacrifice and you please that god or goddess, their spirit can come down and occupy that idol you've made for him or her and grant you all these blessings, but you have to sacrifice, you have to please them, but what if we missed one? What if, what if we left somebody out? We don't want some god up on the Mount Olympus to, to feel angry because we didn't sacrifice to him, so they set up an altar to the unknown god, and this actually is not unique to Mars Hill. When one time we were over in Rome on on a little trip with, with some of my colleagues, and Lincoln Blumel, he found an altar with an inscription in Latin that was to an unknown god, in, in, and that one's in Rome. I actually have heard of people today in certain countries who have adopted the practices of multiple religions, and their reasoning is, well, we just want to make sure we've covered all of our bases, because if we do this religion, but they're not right, and we do this religion, and they're not right, but we do this religion, and this one's right, well, then we've, we want to make sure we're really our saved, so we're going to kind of do everything. Huh. And Paul's preaching, actually, there's a very simple, single choice that covers all the options, and it's Jesus. But this is such a massive mind shift change for many of these people to say, what, just one single God, and none of these other ones exist? They just don't know what to do with it. Yeah, they're struggling so and it's too disruptive not only to their thinking and worldview but also to their economy there's a lot of challenges for why many of the people in the ancient world struggled to initially want to adopt christianity so you get him preaching jesus christ as the unknown god to them because there's no idol or and there's no altar to to the savior on mars hill so he then starts in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. If you look at the Greek word there in Strong's Concordance or a Greek lexicon, you'll see that he's not talking about the big, huge temple structure, the heron, he's talking about these shrines or these idols that these people have built. The word is naos, he doesn't dwell in these, these idols that you've made with hands, these shrines, neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. 
And then he does something interesting. If you go over to this next page, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now, Paul is quoting Greek poets to prove his point here. So can you see this, this idea in this Greek poet saying we're the offspring of God, and now here's Paul standing on Mars Hill pointing to all of these idols saying, are you the offspring? Did, did any of them give life to you? Are, do you claim them as your parents in any way, shape, or form? And so he's trying to use Greek philosophy and Greek argumentation to prove a point. You'll notice this isn't going to work very well, and so in his future missionary labors and letters, he abandons trying to philosophize with them or trying to use their own uh, writings and their own poets to prove his point, and he stays with uh, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ more directly. It'd be like me today trying to use physics or just philosophy all on its own to convince people about Jesus without ever appealing to the revelations that we have that directly teach about him. And so I think Paul learns from his experience. We did hear at one point in his letters, he says, I'm a Greek to the Greek, Jews to the Jews. He tries to meet people on their cultural ground and communicate with them in a way that makes sense. I think as you point out, he realizes, I need to be teaching more clearly and purely from the doctrines instead of trying to do it indirectly through people's culture where they might actually not fully understand the message of who Jesus is. So, we get to the end of his speech here, and he says in verse uh, 31, because God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, that's Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now, at that point, here you are in the capital city of pagan worship, Athens, and the capital city where Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle have done their their work 400 years ago, and it's just spread into the whole Mediterranean region from there, and one of the doctrines that they, they do not believe in is resurrection, and that's what Paul is now preaching, a god who came down and died, and his father raised him from the dead, it, this, is, this is a tough pill for these pagan worshipers to follow. And what we swallow. hear in one of Paul's later letters, foolishness to the Greeks. So then it's like, that's foolish thought. What, what religious person would want to worship somebody who's dead? So notice the reaction, verse 32, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, oh, we will hear thee again on this matter. We, we want to hear more. We, they, they tend to like these kinds of debate. It's probably entertaining to them. So Paul departed from among them, and it says, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among them which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So he does gain a few disciples for the cause of Christ in Athens, but largely he's rejected and in chapter 18, he left Athens and came down to Corinth, and there's where he stays with Aquila and Priscilla. 
Now, Corinth, the, these two, they're tent makers, which is Paul's uh, craft or trade from before. Corinth is this amazing city that sits between two seas down on the Peloponnese of, of Greece, and there's about a mile stretch between these two seas, and so it's an ancient highway between these two ports on either side, tons of people would be coming through this region every day and every year, so it's a busy, bustling place. Very cosmopolitan, and frankly, you're going to find everything in that ancient city that you would find in a modern city today in terms of types of people and activities, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And they opposed themselves and blasphemed. He shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your heads, I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And a reminder here, blood is a symbol of responsibility. He's not talking literally that people are going to be bloodied here. He's simply saying your sins are your responsibility and your sins will not be my responsibility. We see this in the Book of Mormon where Jacob is preaching and he says, I take off my garments, I shake them before you. He's essentially saying to the people, Jacob, that I've now preached the truth and if you commit sin, that's on you. You're responsible and the blood will be on your garments and not mine. I am not responsible for your sin. So here's here's Paul in this city where he, he's facing rejection once again from the leaders of the, the Jewish synagogue, and verse 9 says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. That's all Paul needs. Instead of going somewhere else, it's like we've, we've seen him pass through dozens of cities on this missionary journey so far, but Corinth is where he's going to put down some roots, and it says in verse 11 that he stayed there for a year and six months working with these people. So from verse 12 to 17, you get this little uh, interlude in the story where the, the leaders of the Jews bring Paul before the magistrates or to the judgment seat, and they're saying things like, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. So you're seeing that Paul's getting this from both sides, both from the Gentiles and from the Jews. They're, the Jews are now saying, you, he's, he's perverting our law. He's telling people to worship God totally differently than we know we're supposed to from their perspective. And so uh, the leader, Gallio, at the very end of verse 17, has said, Gallio cared for none of those things. He, he wasn't going to get involved in their, in their religious, religious de debate. Yeah. yeah, a good politician does not get involved in religious debates unless it's going to cause uh, – unless the religious debates are causing disruption to society. And then in verse 18, he, he stayed there a good while and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Kentria, for he had a vow. So he's taken a Nazarite vow, which is the highest Jewish vow 
It's, and some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, why? The reality is, is again, he doesn't see himself as apostate Jew, as having left the Jewish faith. He believes in certain elements of that Jewish faith, but he understands that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses, but in this case he shaved his head, he's headed back to Syria where the missionary journey began, and he has this vow, and we're going to see that at the uh, in next week's lesson as well, the extension of this vow. So in verse 22, we close off the second missionary journey when he returns to Antioch, and then verse 23 opens up the third missionary journey, the longest of the three, and after he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So now we're retracing those same steps that we did on the second missionary journey, uh, and we're introduced to Apollos, this man who was really learned, a Jew who is teaching amazing things, and he's so close. Priscilla and Aquila listen to him preach and say, wow, he has amazing gifts, but he's got some things that are just slightly off. So after Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside and teach him a few things and, and redirect him, he becomes an amazing missionary. And Paul really approves of Apollo later. We see this in some of the letters where Paul says some were of Apollos, some of Paul, but ultimately he's trying to say we're all of Jesus Christ. So Apollo apparently became this very powerful early Christian preacher. So now we come up into Ephesus in chapter 19, and this is an interesting story where, where Paul runs into this group of men who they've, they're disciples, they say, we've, we've been baptized, and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, we, we haven't even heard whether there be such a thing as the Holy Ghost. What are you talking about, Paul? What is that? And then he asks, well, then how were you baptized? And they said, well, unto John's baptism. In other words, we went down into the water and somebody said a prayer and immersed us in the water. We were baptized the way John baptizes. And Paul says, but the person who baptized you didn't say anything about the gift of the Holy Ghost to you? No? And so Paul then describes this uh, in verse 4. He says, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. So now they have evidence that they do have the Holy Ghost, and it just is about the early Christian church did not have quite the same clarity of structure like we understand in the modern day where we have modern means of communication. So here's Paul having to go about to make sure that people truly get the most updated and correct teaching and ordinances. Very good. So now we're in Ephesus, eastern – or sorry, western coastline of Turkey, and it says in verse 8, he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. Again, he's giving the first opportunity everywhere he goes to the Jews first. Then we go to the Gentiles. Verse 9 says, but when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, before the multitude he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued for the space 
of two years. It's a long time. This is the longest time to stay. He was 18 months in Corinth. Now he's going to be here in Ephesus for, for two years. Now, just a little side note here. When he was in Corinth, that's when he wrote his first missionary epistles to the Thessalonians up in Thessalonica from his second missionary journey. So you get first and second Thessalonians, probably our earliest New Testament writings that we have of the 27 books were written during that second missionary journey. Now here he is in, in Ephesus and he's going to write some letters to the Corinthian saints where he'd spent 18 months previously. So that's where you start to see some of these epistles coming out is in these uh, in these second and third missionary journeys. So when he's writing letters, he's writing letters back to the Galatians as well as to Romans who he has not yet met. And again, the, the way the New Testament is arranged for the Pauline letters is according to the length of the work, so the longest to shortest. So Romans, which may have been one of the later letters of Paul, happens to show up first, whereas Thessalonians, which are shorter, show up a little bit later. So if you wanted to read chronologically, Paul's writings, you could start with uh, First and Second Thessalonians. So now here we are in Ephesus for this two-year time period, and it says, verse 11, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So you, you get this incredible experience with the handkerchiefs or the aprons being taken from Paul to touch people, and they were healed of their uh, evil spirits went out of them, or the diseases. Now there's this interesting story that takes place in verse 13 through 20 about certain vagabond Jews who are exorcists who take upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. So they're trying to co-opt what they think are these sacred, powerful words, but they don't really have the authority given to them from Jesus to speak in the authority of the name of Jesus to, to accomplish these great deeds. So there are seven sons of Sceva, in verse 14, a Jew and a chief of the priests, which were doing this kind of exorcist work. And they say this to a man with an evil spirit, and the spirit responded and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I this is one of those stories that just kind of makes me chuckle that you could imagine the early Christian listeners getting the point here that if you misuse the power of God, it will not work out well for you. You might find yourself fleeing from the situation wounded and naked. And in this case, if you, if you break this down, the devil, when, when he interacts with people, that's the effect. He's always going to leave you exposed, vulnerable, uncovered, and wounded. He never comes – Satan never heals. He never blesses. He never feeds. He never fills. He always takes away. He never covers. In fact, the word atonement in Hebrew means to cover. And what has the adversary done here? He is uncovered. Uh, just a, a nice reminder that when you feel temptation to recognize who that temptation is coming from and what his intent is, it's always to leave you naked 
and wounded in one form or another. So then the word spreads, great things are happening, and now the opposition comes up in verse 24 with Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana. If you looked at the Greek word underlying shrines in Strong's or in a Greek lexicon, you will find that it's the word naos, that in other places has been translated as temples. So a certain man, Demetrius, the silversmith, he's made these shrines or these temple, these idols for Diana, Artemis, if you want the Greek name for her, it brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. Well, now Paul's preaching this, this new faith, and all of a sudden business is really shut down at the idol shops, and nobody's buying these statues, and Diana is the patron goddess for Ephesus. They have a huge temple to her. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. It's huge. It's like you go to the company town and you basically say, this company is now shut down. The people in that company town are going to feel deeply, deeply threatened. So they have the rest of chapter 19 is this huge assembly gathered, and for two hours they're crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians! They're, they're saying it's, it's this idea of, oh no, our patron goddess is going to be offended by what's going on, so they're, they're now having this, this public meeting to stop the, the outcry against her. It's actually it's mob mentality, and again, we look at the ancient world and we think, oh man, they do things differently back then. In some ways, human nature has not changed much. Have you ever seen anywhere in the world in the last, I don't know, time period where mob mentality has ruled and people are just chanting things mindlessly because they're like, this is my tribe, this is my group, and I'm going to protect this group at all costs without really thinking about what am I chanting and what is the real threat, if there is one or not. And humans just have a way of getting tied into thoughtless mob mentality, which can really diminish individual agency. So the way this ends, this struggle, is thanks to a town clerk mentioned in verse 35, and he speaks to the group and he, he quiets them and he gives them reason again, and verse 41, when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. So thanks to this, this one guy, we kind of push down this, this uprising from the mob. So then, in chapter 20, Paul now goes over to Greece. So in verse 7, it says, upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And this is a very applicable story to a certain demographic. Oh, when I was a young man, I'm like, this is the one set of passages in the scriptures I truly identify with, where some preacher just goes on for a long time and most of us are in a deep sleep. So some of you watching this, since this particular uh, lesson has gone on fairly long because we're covering a lot of ground, you might be relating perfectly with Eutychus in this context because Paul is long in preaching and so Eutychus sunk down with deep or with sleep and he fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Yeah, it seems like he's been sitting out on the windowsill, falls asleep, and he's out for the third floor. Uh, this is not a good situation to preach somebody to, to death, basically. <laughs> So Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. 
and when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And then they brought the young man alive. So Eutychus was raised from the dead. Uh, and we think, oh, what a what a fun story. He gets raised from the dead to hear preaching for another six or eight hours. <laughs> yes. What what a fun story, right? Or, or is there actually some beautiful gospel symbolism in this story? It could Eutychus actually represent Adam and Eve, or perhaps me and you, that we've fallen three stories, we're dead, there's nothing we can do, no, no dead body can say, everybody relax, I'm just going to raise myself, it's done, it's over. The fall introduces some problems that we can't fix ourselves, and Paul now takes on this Christ-like symbolic role of the Savior, the Redeemer, to come and restore life into a situation where the person can't help themselves at all. I love Eutychus beyond just kind of the funny aspects of the story, but because I can see the power of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ in my own life reflected off of this page, and how grateful I am that it's not just a, a fancy story, this idea that we're all going to die and be laid in the grave, but the reality that death will occur for all of us, but the Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will raise us from the dead and we will live again. It's such a beautiful, beautiful promise kind of contained symbolically in this little story. And of course, so Paul, being the good missionary he is, moves on to his next stage of his missionary journey, strengthening the, the Christian converts that he had met in the past and also finding new ones. So to bridge the gap, Paul visits many cities, starting in verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, and he's, he knows he's going to head back to Jerusalem now, and he, he knows some things. He senses there, there are going to be some struggles. Verse 22 says, Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. I, I sense something's going to happen, but the Spirit is taking me to Jerusalem. What's interesting here, if you go on from verse, say, 23 all the way through verse 35, it's almost like his final witness and testimony. We find this kind of literary style in other aspects of scriptures where somebody knows that their life may be coming to an end and they give a final testimony or summary of the things they've done and often are trying to highlight that they have tried to be on God's path, have not wounded other people or taking things from them. Uh, we see this from the prophet Samuel, King Benjamin's speech, uh, Lehi's final speech. For example, we see in verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Think about King Benjamin's speech where he had spent his life serving people and he says, I have not been a burden to people, I have tried instead to lift people's burdens. And we also see from Paul something similar where he has dedicated his life to God and now is giving a final speech to this group of people who will probably not hear from him again before he returns to Jerusalem, which will create the closing chapter for sending him bound to Rome. Which, if, if you consider that, you've, you've devoted your whole uh, energy over these last years to these people, and like you said, you know you're probably not going to come back with them, and 
look, for instance, in verse 28 and 29, even before that, these, these precursor prophecies of what's going to happen. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He's, he's already sensing oh, there are going to be wolves that come in and, and undo some of this work that, that we've started, so do everything you can to uphold the flock. What an amazing concept that these early missionaries had to wrestle with that our current prophets and apostles never have to wrestle with because they know what's going to happen with the church and kingdom of Jesus Christ in the latter days on the earth, that it, it's not going to fall away into an apostasy that we'll get um, in, in greater detail when we read Paul's first letter ever written when we cover the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And so he finishes here with verse 35, I have showed you all things how that soul laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's the only place in the Bible where Jesus is quoted as saying that. The, the Gospels don't mention that teaching, so we get Paul sharing something from the Lord that, uh, that we didn't get back in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. We have covered a lot of ground. It might have felt like a very long lesson. If you think back to the early part of this lesson, we mapped out the length that Paul's journeys took, thousands of miles, many years. And we talked about how the journey is as important as the destination. So wherever you are in your journey, have hope, have faith, keep pressing forward. Know that every day as we remember Jesus, as we promise at sacrament, we can have his spirit to be with us. And as our journey progresses, we can look back like we're doing with the life of Paul and see how God's hand has been in our lives. And sometimes we may not see that immediately every single day, but if we seek to see God's hand, if we ask to see it, we will. And we know that God loves you. He is with you. We invite you to share that love with others as you will go about your daily journey. We know that God loves you. We know that he will be with you. And we encourage you to share that love with others in your daily journey. And we leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. <laughs>